Therese Paulson, welcome to the new school. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You run something called the Breath of Hope Foundation. What does the Breath of Hope Foundation do? We serve children from war and disaster, uh, very much focused on trauma in general. Uh, children uh, also grown up that has been affected by all sorts of, of traumas, but primarily war and disaster. Can you all hear Therese or not? Okay, can you project a little more? So, as we go there. Let's, let's, let's start again, because they didn't hear that. But we're just going to start again. I speak a little bit okay. low, so I have to okay. up the... <laughs> okay. So we're going to start again. Therese Paulson, welcome to the new school. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for giving me this opportunity to bring Breath of Hope and its work out. So tell us about the Breath of Hope Foundation. The Breath of Hope Foundation is a foundation that serves traumatized, uh, traumatized children from war and disaster. Uh, we're very focused on um, war and disaster zones in the world, but are also beginning to create curriculums for a center of excellence um, into school systems in changing education. And where are the primary places that you've been working with children in war and disaster areas? Sri Lanka. Indonesia, Thailand, and uh, we started Germany, uh, where we have internships programs as well as teaching teachers to bring the practices to the children. And uh, so take, for example, uh, uh, Sri Lanka. That's a, some of us know, a big island off the coast of India. There's been a civil war going on there between the Tamil Tigers and the government for, what, 20 years or more. Um, uh, what is your program like in Sri Lanka? Well, uh, let me round up a little bit. Not only is there a civil war, but about 50% of the mothers are sent off to the Middle East for prostitution or maids. Uh, there's a lot of uh, prostitution on the beaches, um, lots of drugs. Um, so there's a lot of issues, different issues that we're dealing with when it comes to the children. Uh, the programs that we have is in the south coast, uh, in some of the major areas where the tsunami hit. And what we saw was that a lot of wonderful people with psychology would come in and serve the children, but there was a missing component. So um, after the tsunami, uh, I was asked if I would bring these body-mind practices to those areas and really to see how it would affect the children differently by having a body-mind practice, meaning yoga, meaning the psychosocial what they call in the medical world in the West. So isn't bringing yoga to an island off the coast of India a little like bringing beer to Germany or something? <laughs> I mean, one would think that That's a very there'd good be point, yoga Mike. there. <laughs> um, yes, but it has been forgotten. Hmm. And uh, we always uh, make sure we tell people that, that we're just there to remind them of what's already theirs. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, in the Hindu tradition, yoga has been central, but... The, the Tamil Tigers, as I understand, represent the Hindu tradition, whereas the government is the, 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 Selene, is the Sri Lankan more. Is, is there a tradition more of... More Buddhists. Yeah, more Buddhist. So is there a tradition of yoga in the Buddhist community as well as in the Tamil Hindu community? No, but we don't try to exclude. Um, we use the yoga just as it's prescribed, as a mm -hmm. philosophy on how to live a better life. 
So it's a life tool that we bring into the children and the teachers uh, to strengthen them, to give them resilience, to give them uh, an understanding of there are different ways than actually what they're being served at this point. So what do you actually teach the children? If you, you have, what, an orphanage, for example? Do you have an orphanage yes, in Sri Lanka? Yes, we have many orphanages. Yeah. How many children are in the orphanage? It all depends on the orphanage. Mm-hmm, but but the we run anywhere from 20 to 250 uh-huh. Uh, children in the orphanages, and some are deaf children's schools, and often orphanages, and some are just normal orphanages. So, when you are in an orphanage, what do you actually do with these children? Uh, we teach them the yoga practices, but through nature, using animals and sounds, and um, uh, remind them of their own true nature in a natural form. Uh, sometimes we even use music. Uh, uh, sometimes we even do yoga and gardening. Um, we use many different forms of uh, really invite in their own um, experience or what it means to feel themselves. Uh, we work with the senses, all five senses. So however we can utilize the five senses, that's how we teach them. Many of these children are, are actually quite traumatized by what they've been through, I take it. Yes. And... What do you see as a result of the work with yoga with the children? What happens to the children as you do the work with yoga with them? What happens is exactly what happens with trauma in general to all of us. It's not that there's any separation from the trauma, from a war or disaster or a heart disease or a cancer is that trauma um, blocks the heart into its true opportunity to feel and sense itself. It cuts off from our true nature in feeling and using all our senses, which are crucial in any healing. So the best example I can give of it is um, if, you, uh, if you're driving a car and, or if you have a deer uh, running through the meadow and it runs into the street and it stops and it looks with its big green eyes or brown eyes into the highlight of the car. In that moment, what happens? There's a stop but she doesn't continue to follow its mother. And um, in other words, there's a cutoff. Or if you're in a jumping board uh, in a pool area and you're standing there jumping on the actual board but you just can't get yourself to jump into that pool, what is it? that is stopping us in that moment to allow ourselves to move within our authentic self and trust, trusting moving forward and actually going forward. So the trauma takes us away from our heart. And these practices are heart practices. They are encouraging each individual to open their heart in their own true time. And what is it about trauma that causes us to cut ourselves off from our hearts and our feelings? Can you restate that? Well, what is it in a traumatic experience that makes us stop being in touch with our uh, ongoing experience in such a way that the yoga is needed to bring us back to it? Like I said, the trauma is a complete closure to the heart. It's like a shock. It's a Mm. signal that completely makes that separation. And with that, I'm not saying yoga is the only form. 
Qigong could be your Tai Chi, but some form that actually brings that within the heart or allowing the heart to actually come more towards yourself so that you can find that scientist or that healing uh, feeling within yourself that lies within us all. So when you do this work with the children and they open up and reconnect with their senses and their feelings, what do you see in terms of how the children actually change? A fuller form of expression, uh, better sleeping patterns, better eating patterns, um, much more clarity in making decisions, much more focus and concentration within their school and their education in general, and less fear about making the moves that actually brings them forth into different directions of what they have been taught through the actual traumas. Mm. Do they begin to talk about the experience of the trauma in ways that they hadn't been able to before? Sometimes, or sometimes they'll express it through painting. Uh, sometimes they express it through music. Uh, sometimes they express it in general just through the actual poses. And that's where the um, pranayamas, the breathing techniques, become very important. If they can actually stay within the pose of the yoga and breathe through it, they see an opportunity for something else that appears as space that allows them to move further into other directions. So what are there, eight branches of yoga in the traditional teaching? How many of those eight branches of yoga do you use with the children? Depending on the level of, um, of practice, after 21 months, uh, we still don't consider them advanced uh, practitioners. So um, usually we don't use direct meditations uh, in the practices of yoga. Usually it's said that you have to be at least an intermediate or past intermediate uh, to be able to do the, the, uh, the actual sitting, the meditation. Um, they say it's a disturbance to the mind and could be actually more dangerous. So you do breathing practices with them, uh, pranayama and hatha practices, the poses. The poses, yes. And what else do you do? And we practice the yamas and niyamas, which clearly has proven to be the psychosocial system, working on the inner and the outer world. So the yamas and niyamas are the ethical commandments of yes, yoga. Definitely. So those three things, the, the breathing practices, the hatha practices, and the ethical practices are the heart of what yes. you do with the children. Yes. Mm-hmm. But let's remember the, the ethical meaning that when you're working on the inner purifications, mm. what do we eat, how do we speak, how do we live, what is our surroundings like, uh, all those components then also with how we live in the outer world in reference to lying, stealing, uh, motivation, etc., um, they all have a say into the full picture. Less than three months ago, you were in Sri Lanka and your life changed. It did? I believe so. (laughs) Well, you should know. (laughs) Well, what I know is that you were hit by a car uh, while walking down the street. Is that right? Yeah, I was. And just describe the scene to us. What were you doing when you were hit? I was walking. It was a Sunday afternoon about 4.50 in the afternoon, and I was walking uh, from having done some work, meeting with teachers, and um, I got hit from the back right onto my left sacrum and uh, broke my sacrum, Uh, split all the way through, and uh, fell under the car and tried to protect my head with my hand. Um, 
which was stuck under the wheel as the driver kept driving. So I had a skin graft done from my right thigh to my left hand. And what else was broken? I had two uh, fractures in my pubic synthesis, one in my iliac crest and one in my lower left rib. Mm. And you were taken to a local hospital, is that correct? That's correct. Mm. Um, I asked uh, two guys to carry me into a tuk-tuk, with, uh, like a three-wheeler, um, uh, to the nearest hospital, which was a private hospital. Um, but way down south, the hospitals are <laughs> not the best conditions. So... Uh, I, th- I think I looked like World War, F- World War Four or something when I <laughs> exited that hospital a week later. And you went from there to another hospital in Sri yes, Lanka? Yes, I was evacuated to a hospital in um, Colombo. And then from there to a hospital? In, in Singapore. Uh-huh. So among those three hospitals, you were in hospitals for how long? Um, three weeks in total. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so your work has been with yoga and trauma with these children. Mm. And here you had this deep experience of personal trauma. Um, what have you learned from this personal experience of trauma working with yoga in your own healing? Uh, it's not uh, the first time I've had a trauma uh, and clearly I could not be doing the work that I'm doing if I didn't understood what trauma really is about, both physically and emotionally. Mm. Yet clearly this was a different form of trauma because it came from behind, so it was unexpected. Yet how many traumas are really expected? And I think what I have, have learned from this, um, first of all, these uh, 11 weeks since the accident, um, I have really become my own scientist through the practices, following every movement of how to work with the system, the scientific system, meaning uh, noticing where and how I can access my own medicine. And it's been really potent uh, for my work, Um, it still is. Every day is a new discovery. Uh, Each day there's a new opening. And the investigation is constant, all day long. It can be through speech, it can be through physical activity, um, it can be through a pattern of behavior where I notice the mind and how much we're just um, wrapped up in patterns of behaviors and how we can unravel, and how much of the trauma is truly a blessing in which we can unravel if we have the tool, a a tool with the consciousness to work within ourselves. And how much these, these practices also can be a blessing to people that have had experiences of death in their family, children, grown-ups. Um, because what happens is when you have a deep trauma and you come out of it and you're alive, the questions are, well, why me? Why am I alive? Where am I going next? What's up with this? What the hell am I going to do now? You know, um, 
like what next really is the big question um, and then that takes you into a deeper layer and understanding of the potency of coming together of what yoga really is about the union how we're not meant to be here alone how we have to continue to serve one another and find ways to serve one another and how blessed I am to have had again another opportunity of these practices uh, on such deep levels of understanding that we truly um, have the capacity to heal ourselves in many, many different ways. So you spoke of becoming a scientist of yourself and how you continue this conscious work on healing all day, every day. Can you give us a, an insight of what that's actually like when you find yourself in the course of the day working on something. So, for example, uh, if you are, do you work on re-knitting a bone that has been broken? Are you, are you consciously working on re-knitting bones, for example? Or where you have the skin graft, are you consciously working on helping the skin heal? How does that work? What is that like? Very good question. Yes. Um, it's constant. It's what they talk about in the scriptures, um, in the Bhagavad Gita, uh, the yogic scripture, of a constant investigation. And what they really mean, I see now, is not just a constant, constant investigation in, in uh, your behaviors, but constant investigation also, also internally. Um, so I shift during the day um, you can see I'm moving my hand quite a bit uh, on and off uh, where there's a consciousness that's working consistently in the directions where I need to work. Um, then I move to the computer where I write everything down. Then I move back into working with my system and that's how I'm shifting continuously uh, because what I'm finding is that it's absolutely crucial which will take me a little bit into another area uh, if you don't mind is that we must change education now. It's crucial for children in all countries. And meaning not the education that has lied before us, but we must bring in also a personal development in combination to everything else that we're learning on the outer world. That we are now at this point just teaching kids everything on the outer world, but nothing about themselves. And there is more resistance and more conflict than ever and confusion and ADD and ADHD. And clearly, after 10 years of taking a pill, we will have a bunch of numbing children and people walking around and not having strengthened our communities, strengthened our people, but rather weakened them. So you, you, you would want children to become more scientists of themselves, to understand how to be scientists of themselves. I think if there's one thing I could want to give back to the world, yes. Where did you learn yoga? Who taught you yoga? I learned yoga in India. Um, I learned it through Patabi Joyce and Iyengar. Um, through whom? Patabi Joyce and Iyengar. But really, most of my readings and... Um, Interest was through Krishnamacharya, which was really the father of those two. And uh, I've been studying Sanskrit for 20 years. That's how I started yoga, which is really my passion. And on a daily basis before your accident, how much time would you spend each day actually doing yoga? Two hours. Mm -hmm. 
And in addition to yoga, what other fields of integrative health have you studied in some depth? Um, quite a bit. <laughs> uh, anywhere from pre-medical school to acupuncture, um, to midwifery, uh, to many different kinds of massage practices, healing practices, hands-on. Um, that's some of them. So all of these different disciplines, the yoga, uh, the acupuncture, the knowledge of the body from pre-medical studies, uh, uh, and so on, come together in what you're calling a science of the self. Yeah, yeah and I think also the fact that I was always curious about these practices. Um, I was very involved with uh, both the, the Gorgi work for many years, and also the Hamid Almas uh, work, mm. which I know is out here in San Francisco. Um, all works of of really bringing us back to our true nature and looking deeply in um, to find a way to open and move out, um, which I think are important. Now, as you know, at Commonweal, we've worked for the last uh, 24 years with week-long retreats for cancer patients that I've been very involved with. And, and we have the participants in the Cancer Health Program do yoga twice a day. Um, and um, so the, the practices that we do with patients are uh, the hatha yoga, the physical stretches, and the pranayama, the breathing, and the deep relaxation, and the meditation, but also chanting. We do yogic chanting quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And, and I think in a way very parallel to what you have done, we find that many people with cancer have been deeply traumatized both by the experience of the diagnosis, but more often just by the, by the treatments themselves, which have been authentically traumatic and have closed them off from themselves. So we're sitting here actually in a room where, uh, where we do the yoga with the people in the Cancer Help Program uh, over uh, 150 week-long retreats over the last 23 years. So I'm curious what counsel you would have for us in our work with cancer patients about taking the yoga deeper in ways that we may not have considered or thought about? My first question would be, why are you practicing two times a day and what are you doing? Well, the yoga practices that we do twice a day uh, start with, uh, since people are often physically quite compromised, so some people are sitting in chairs or, you know, not able to move around a lot, but others are able to do some version of the yoga, and others have actually had a lot of yoga experience. So there are only eight participants at a time. Uh, and so the, the basic uh, approach is, um, uh, is uh, the hatha yoga uh, uh, the breathing practice, the meditation, and the deep relaxation. All doing the same thing? Uh, all doing, um, yes, close variants according to ability of the same thing. Mm-hmm. And then I should have added to that that um, we also uh, teach uh, yoga philosophy, you know, basically helping people think about. Uh, 
to what degree are they the body, to what degree are they the mind, to what degree are they something beyond the mind, and just all of the, mm-hmm. the rich, deep tradition of yoga philosophy which can help people gain a perspective on the trauma that they've been through. The fact of bringing people together, like a garland of, of flowers, really, is very potent. Mm. There's, there's actually nothing stronger. It's like you realize when you come into New York City how intense it is because so much is there together. There's so many people together in one clunk. But the yoga is not designed to have the same practice. There is not possibility that anybody, for example, sitting in this room could have the same practice. Not possible. Everybody is individual. And the yoga is designed as a science, and clearly it's a science, because we look at each individual and understand really what's happening within that you know, person and design a practice according to that. Use very specific poses according to that in healing the different parts of the organs and systems inside. So if you were to strengthen your program, it would be for the teacher, which is really just a facilitator, because we are not the teachers, looking and being fully aware and conscious enough to be able to look at that system without ego, without mind, but with a width of a, what do you call it, kaleidoscope or a large... um, to see deeper beyond into the human not only what physically they are in need of in that moment, but also emotionally. Then you have the yoga. So what you're suggesting is that a, an, a deeply experienced yoga practitioner may have a depth of insight that goes beyond just looking in an external way at a student. It's potent. How can they, if they don't have a deep sense of consciousness within themselves, to be able to reflect that out and just be able to listen to the other human being, how can we treat? So when you look at somebody that you are teaching yoga, um, does that sense of what the practice should be for them come to you as a as an intuition, or does it come to you in some other way? I suppose you can call it intuition. It's a learning to sense, look, and listen, but really sense myself in the space without getting lost, feeling my roots, but really listen deeply from in my eardrum and really look from behind my eyes in the cave with no prejudged ideas, Um, on how I think it should be, but rather allow whatever message is coming in that moment um, to guide me. So if you're working with 20 or 50 orphans... Yes. uh, Good question. How can you do this with all of these children at the same time? That's the art. That's why I won't do a training less than 21 months at least. Do you teach teachers to, to continue the work oh, when yeah, you're not there? Oh, yeah, that's a very, very big part of Breath of Hope's programs. 
to le- to make it self-sustained and to make it possible to con- have a continuity to it and to really serve humanity, you have to teach teachers, you have to teach professionals that can actually keep the movement in flow. But do you anticipate that the teachers that you teach will be deep enough in the yoga to be able to have that capacity to intuitively individualize the way you are able to? Not after two years, but it starts after two years. And it doesn't mean I will leave them alone, but it means that the core of the training is, after two years, settled enough within the system that it's um, continuous. Hmm. So uh, let's talk about your work in, uh, in Indonesia. We talked about your work in Sri Lanka. What is your work like in Indonesia? Hmm. My work in Indonesia um, is very connected to the high Hindu priest of Indonesia who had asked if we would be involved in creating a school for the local people. Is this in Bali? Yeah, in serving the practices to allow them to come back to their center um, that really has been lost through tourism and money. At the same time, it was a great opportunity for Breath of Hope to make something that would make us self-sustainable. Um, as you know, having a non-for-profit, it's a continuous of having to fundraise. So this gave us an opportunity to root the foundation into the place in Bali and have our office there uh, without feeling completely strapped in the sense of having to pay somebody $80,000 a year just alone to have one for the administration in New York. This seemed crazy to me. I've been focused on service delivery and the work is, is on the move, but... Uh, Constantly, I have felt strapped in the sense of having to, oh, I have to fundraise. I have to fundraise. This is part of it. I have to, I have to. Um, and it's just, it's not worth it. It's not why I'm doing this work. I love to serve people. And so in, in Bali, you're working with the local children? Local children, also grown-ups. Mm. We also have internships. No matter where we are, I uh, have internships so that I can feel uh, or have a stronger team around me uh, to make the movement uh, sufficient and working where we are. And at the same time, we're teaching the teacher trainings and the children. I understand you're also working with a German group that works on the Thai in Thailand, is that correct? Uh, I'm working with two German groups. One is the Germany Trauma Specialist Team. It's called ENOD, and it's uh, a team that's called in to trauma disaster zones in the world. Um, from whenever there's been a war disaster, uh, they're being sent in approximately a week after the incidents. Um, and they have asked uh, Breath of Hope to collaborate and create um, a model, as they call it, um, in bringing what is really the most potent to the people and the children right after there has been a disaster. Uh, the other Germany group that we're working with is uh, Jürgen Simmer, who is a brilliant uh, progressive educator from Germany. Uh, he has created schools in Asia called School for Life. And um, the brilliance of, of this man is that he has completely understood the importance of that education is not cannot continue the way it has been, that we must bring forth uh, what what he calls a center of excellence for personal development so that you have both the inner and the outer world uh, an opportunity to work with for the kids. And uh, he has um, asked me to be involved in creating this center for excellence for personal development. It's a curriculum in really personal development. And how do his centers work? What do, what do they look it's like? It's schools. It's uh, schools and also orphanages. 
And so, how, how many of them have you visited? Well, he has two. We started our first project with them. Um, uh, this was our, our second one, uh, just a month ago. Um, and we're now starting the second uh, school project through him, both which are in Thailand. One is in Chiang Mai and one is down in Phuket area. So what, what does the one in Chiang Mai look like? Is it a mm. house? Is it a campus? What, how many kids are there? What is it like? It's, um, it's about uh, 200, uh, 250 kids and 40 teachers that we have in training. And um, he's very, very um, conscious about the environment. Uh, so uh, the school itself is actually laying up in the mountains of Chiang Mai, um, where they're learning agriculture, uh, where they're learning um, about health, and they have also a normal uh, level of education at the same time, and they live there. And he has these different uh, groups of children, orphans, that are living there, and has one or two which usually is a fe male and female, that even if it's not their mothers, are called mother and father, that they live within, you know, three or four different houses. Um, How many orphans in each house? Uh, that's a good question. Mm, I don't know exactly offhand at this point, but uh, I don't know exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So in his curriculum, which uh, he wants this set of yoga practices offered to the children as part of what he's doing. What is his broader philosophy of what this education for life is like? I mean, I have a feeling for it, but what else happens that makes it different from a regular school or something? Well, I think that he's bringing in the, the uh, higher education in reference to the environment that he's very aware of uh, bringing nature into what you call a normal level of education, um, which is completely up to standard. And uh, the fact that he's so focused on also the healing uh, practices, you know, really giving the children a tool um, for life that will bring forth both strengths and resilience and hope and concentration and, um, yeah, really allowing them to see that healing capacity within themselves in a young age. So I'd like to come back to this sense of being a scientist of yourself, which has always struck me as being one of the things that interests me the most. Um, but I have to say that I find, so for example, in my family, um, uh, my brothers, uh, uh, my, just my whole family, uh, my wife, my son, uh, I am by far the most interested in being a scientist of myself. Uh, in other words, uh, I come from a family where a lot of people, in the best sense of the word, have a kind of, uh, you know, sort of suck it up point of view about suffering. You know, everybody suffers, sort of suck it up, you know, deal with it, uh, but don't necessarily spend a lot of time on it. And I happen to be one of those people who is you know, completely ex intrigued by the experience of suffering. And Penny Hamilton's here with us and is, is also a scientist of the self. But it seems to me that, at least I've come to the point of view, that one, one needs to have a great deal of respect for the people who don't choose to be scientists of themselves because they're busy doing other good work in the world. So if you are inclined to be a scientist of the self, but you are trying to help people who are not inclined to be scientists of the cell. 
what is the respectful way to offer them possibilities without insisting that they become something other than what they are? Can you be an example? Well, sure. I have... Uh, I mean, it's never worth I have a close friend. Uh, I, no, I have a relative uh, with a son uh, who has Asperger's syndrome. Um, and um, he's done a beautiful job parenting this child, just beautiful, but has no interest in the possibility that uh, food allergies play a really significant role in many autistic or uh, autistic spectrum children. Um, and, um, and therefore has not investigated that, even though it's very clear to me that the child has food allergies, which I believe are contributing uh, to his condition. That's one example. And uh, so this is a relative, somebody I love a lot and have enormous respect for his uh, parenting and dedication. But he just doesn't want to look into this dimension of uh, the experience. Uh, or another example, um, uh, you know, I've had a heart attack uh, uh, myself five years ago. I went deeply, deeply into healing work with it. Um, but I have other relatives with heart disease uh, at least as advanced as mine who have no interest in doing the dietary shifts and the other things. So just to say where I'm at, I offer things, but then I'm just very deeply respectful of the fact that there are a lot of people who just aren't into this work. And I then encourage them to be who they are mm -hmm. rather than encouraging them to try to do what I would do because I happen to be what you call a scientist of the self. Not as advanced a scientist of the self as you are, but in my own way, a scientist of the self. So I guess my question to you is, how do you respond when people really aren't that interested in inner work or transformational change, even if you see that it might be very useful to them. I do, as, as you just said, I offer. Mm -hmm. And if it's not received, I let be. And uh, I think one of the greatest teachers is just through example. Yes. Through example. Mm -hmm. Because I think as we do it over and over again, um, it's like learning to ride a bicycle. You start with uh, maybe nothing. And then you go to the training wheels, and then you move on without the training wheels. And you know, after a few weeks, you'll be like, you know, like biking down the street. You're an example, um, which then comes from a place of love and compassion, without any push or force or uh, manipulation or control or or ego. And. We talked first about the, the, the yoga aspects, but you've been a deep student of nutrition as well. Um, I guess my philosophy of nutrition is that even though there are certain things that seem to be useful for many people, that there's a tremendous amount of individual variance in what kind of diet actually works best for a specific human being. Is, is that your experience as well? Yes. I mean, the, under the yogic traditions, there are certain things that we definitely refrain from. Um, but definitely, that's a very personal path. 
And so, do you use the, the yogic traditions of different diets depending on whether somebody is rajasic and fiery or tamasic and kind of dull or sattvic and peaceful? In other words, in, in the yoga tradition, there are these different sort of mm -hmm. personality dimensions. Yes. Do you, if you're working with somebody, do you adjust their diet to those different I types? I make suggestions, mm -hmm. but I never force those radical practices mm -hmm. onto others. Um, I can give people my experiences um, also on um, fasting, because fasting is a very important healing component, um, especially if you go deeper into the practices. But it's not something that I force onto people. Uh, but I will definitely suggest it. And it's something we work with with the children. And when, if you were talking about an optimal diet for many people, uh, would you move toward a raw foods vegetarian diet, for example? Or would it be raw or cooked depending on digestive uh, capacity? What, what is your philosophy mm -hmm. of diet, other things being equal for people? I don't think there's anything ego when it comes to diet with people. Um, I think it's very personal again. Some people are better with cooked food, some are better with raw. Um, there's no question for the yogic practices that actually the raw is, is uh, very well or very good for you. Uh, it's also better to be much lighter. And there's certain foods that I definitely refrain from completely. Such as? Um, anything from onions to garlic, um, anything that brings riddhis, as they call them, disturbances to the mind. Mm -hmm. And in terms of uh, breathing practices, just to come back to that point, uh, you call your foundation the Breath of Hope Foundation, and in conversation with you, uh, I've often noticed that pranayama breathing is, is sort of a central aspect of your interest. Why is the breath so important to healing? Probably say it's the fundamental, um, a real true gift that we've been given, but that we don't use. I mean, it's so simple. It's right underneath your nose. It's so silly. Um, it's everywhere. Oxygen is everywhere, and we just don't use it. And yet when we start to use it, even as you're sitting on the chair, if you sense your seat in the chair and take a deep breath, you'll notice how things shifts dramatically, even just from one really deep breath. And a lot of the healing, when I talk about the scientists and the medicine of these practices, has to do with the oxygen, the amount of oxygen we bring in, and to the level we bring them in, whether we focus on the exhale or the inhale, and where we focus the breath into, which can open the systems where it is restricted. And so... Are the basic practices that you use sort of a deep three-part breathing into the abdomen as a, as a core practice? Is that what you, what you describe, or does it vary enormously? When? Well, if you're talking to somebody about just helping them learn breath, uh -huh. uh, for example, in the Cancer Help Program, the, our basic uh, description for people is learning what we call a three-part breath, deep into the abdomen and then coming up and then... So there's a lot of emphasis on sort of a deep three-part breathing. And I'm just mm. checking with you as to whether when you're working with people with just helping them begin to be aware of the breath as an instrument, what do you describe to them? 
I don't want to say there's anything wrong in that because I only want to encourage that you're actually using any form of breathing. Mm-hmm. Um, but clearly, depending on the person again, uh, depending on where their cancer is sitting, uh, you could actually really help the person by encouraging them to breathe into those area, and most likely also by really um, focusing on the exhale. Uh, again, I don't like to, to talk too much about detail unless I have the person in front of me. So, but with a cancer or some other, some other issue or heart disease or something, you would have them breathe into the affected area. A deep breath into the affected area? Yes, definitely. And then an exhalation, when you say focusing on the exhalation, more than on the inhalation? Yes, an exhalation back into the heart, not out through the mouth, but only through the nose. So describe that again. The the breath comes in. So through I would the breathe mouth. from right above the pubic bone, mm-hmm. all the way up to the third eye, and I would exhale through the back of the throat into the heart space, but the right side of the heart space. So what does that mean? If you look down your center chest, there's a line. You have a heart laying across like this, and it would be in the lower right hand corner, where the great masters believe the soul is stored, and I would exhale into that space. So the breath would be in through the nose, yep. down to the pubic bone. No, starting at the pubic bone. Oh, starting at the pubic yep. bone. Inhaling all the way up through the heart. All the way up through up the heart. Up to the third eye. Up to the third eye. And, and then, then exhale from the back of the throat into the heart space on the right side. Uh-huh. The thickness, the voluptuous part, the sole of the heart. Uh-huh. And where would, and would that be explicitly for heart disease or for anybody would it be? In other words, if, if somebody had a cancer, say, of the breast, mm-hmm. would they be breathing into the affected area of the breast? Would they be breathing into the heart? How would they do it? I would do it into the breast. Into the breast. Yes. Where's the restriction? Look at where the restriction mm-hmm. is. And through any form of restriction, it looks like a fist that's closed completely. And as you bring the oxygen in, it allows the restriction to open up and the circulation to move through. Just like when you're birthing a child. Mm. The uterus is mm. closing, mm. using the oxygen, opens. Mm. And then you have the flow and the movement of the mm. circulation. And that is what brings the healing. It's the restriction that brings the sickness. Would you also use alternate nostril breathing with people as a practice? Yes, but with no um, retention. With no retention. Yes. And I would do it very specifically again to how the sickness, you know, has taken, uh, taken mm-hmm. off, if it's really in the depth of the sickness mm-hmm. or if it's only in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And what about meditation or the process leading to meditation? What, what is your instruction to people in meditation? Uh, it really depends on the person if they have a practice or not. But if you try to sit down a person who has no practice and the mind is going 250 miles an hour, you're better off not doing meditation. You're better off having them sit outside and simply look at the treetops or um, so at the So sensory beach awareness, yeah. Sensory awareness, yeah. again, sure. Mm. But to have somebody sit down who is incredibly busy in the mind is completely counterproductive, mm. which is why we don't practice meditation before we are in intermediate series. So I know in insight meditation, for example, they often start with a general awareness of the surroundings, the way you're describing it. And then they move from that inward toward the breath, for yes. example. Yes. 
even that can be quite extreme to somebody who's never done any practices mm -hmm. before. So it's really depending on their level. Um, but I would do a small practice, um, actually, that I shared with Cheryl the other day, uh, your wife, which was a sensing, looking, and listening practice. Very mm -hmm. small, very simple, uh, but something that's actually manageable, meaning really feeling your seat, feeling what's holding you in the space. So for Penny, for example, sitting in the seat, it could be her hands under her and her arms on her legs, her seat against the chair and her uh, right foot against the uh, floor and the left foot that's sort of dangling over the right, what's holding her in the space, carrying her in the space. And then the looking would be way back from the back of the cave out and the listening from the internal ear, really mm -hmm. listening. So those three components of seeing how they interact, one versus the other more at, at, in certain times, and how you can actually bring them all three together, that could be a more simple and much more workable practice for someone who does not have those deeper practices. Mm -hmm. They can get very frustrated with those deeper practices mm -hmm. if they don't really know what they're doing. What drives you to spend so much of your life traveling around the world uh, doing this work with, uh, with children? What is the force within you that chooses to do that? Shall I tell you a little story? Hmm? Shall I tell you a little story? Sure. There was a, a moment in time where this little girl, she, um, she uh, had heard about this doctor in her village, um, which was having a lot of problems, and um, heard that the doctor was on drugs and having a lot of difficulties. And she was driving home from school one day and uh, met this doctor on this car coming towards her. And the doctor rolled down the window and said out through the window, um, park your bicycle, get in the car. So um, she went on the, um, the dirt uh, side of the road, parked her bicycle, locked it, went in the car. And first there was quite a bit of fear because the car was going in the wrong direction. Eventually the car turned around and um, drove back up the road towards her house. So the car arrived at the house and the doctor leaned over her to the other side to open the door, slammed the door open. His hands were shaking on the steering wheel. His face was dripping with uh, sweat into his pelvic floor. And he said, um, your father's dead. Get out of the car. She got out of the car, ran into the house. Next, she was stopped by the housekeeper, who said, relax, relax. You don't need to run. She opened the door to the living room, and the entire family was sitting there, spread out in their own kind of bubble, the mother nervous about the finances, how dear. The brother who was a teenager in the, one of the other living rooms by himself in a corner. The sister who said, mm, your father is dead. He died in an airplane explosion up in north of China in Qingqing. She sat down and she just saw 
all these different components of what had happened in that room within these last maybe 15 minutes of her life. The next day, she um, was told she had to go to school. Now, mind you, the whole village knew of her family, so um, at that moment, she decided that it wasn't safe. She had to hide, so she hid or hid under a table. In the moment of hiding under the table, what do you think happened? Well, clearly, a deep sense of awareness of, of um, that the world was not a safe place. That everything that had been safe, a bubble of, of this world that was safe, was gone. And um, that's what I do today. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Because to be a child today is not really safe, especially in a place where there's been a war or disaster. And um, I know what the trauma is about. So I feel I have a responsibility in serving children with these um, incredibly beautiful tools that um, has given me an opportunity to feel uh, strong, Resilient, determined, um, willful, skillful, health, a sense of um, a deep faith so that the trauma didn't move into just a fear but into a faith um, that kept or or made a solid ground under me. And uh, it's something I've given my own kids and it's something I wish to give other kids. And you were that little girl. That's great. So you've you've taken your childhood experience of trauma and um, out of a lifetime of work on becoming a scientist of the self, are offering this to other children who have been traumatized uh, so that they can recover their connection with their hearts and with their lives. So we're near the end here, but from this recent experience of deep trauma yourself, is there any way in which you feel you are at a new turning point or that something has deepened in you that will affect your life and work going forward? I do. Definitely uh, gave me that space of um, stepping back. And what we spoke about, you and I, yesterday, the feeling of just allowing. Um, When you have a vision... um, and will, it's like a fireball. It's like you see a point and you go, Chris, <laughs> you're certainly going to make it. Now it's more stepping back and just allowing and really wanting to integrate this work. And I've been aware of this this last year and now it's really hit. Not just with uh, my own ideas of it, but really how can we collaborate so that the work itself is not just about 
the union of the yoga, but really the union of people and how I can bring this work with people together, because um, I find it is potent. There's so many wonderful people doing wonderful things, and it's it's still sitting on their thrones, thinking theirs their way is the only way. And uh, I think with everything that's going on in the world today, it's important to come together, like-minded people serving one another and serving a cause that's greater than ourselves, away from the me, me, I, I syndrome. Therese Paulson, founder of the Breath of Hope Foundation, thank you for being with us at the New School. Thank you, Michael, yeah. for giving me this opportunity. Yeah.